Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. This month produced by journalism students at the University of Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. I'm Maddie Green. And I'm Leela Khreiling. In this episode, we bring you stories about some of the regular things in life. Holidays, food, books and flowers, and how they are making a positive difference as we slowly emerge from the pandemic. And on that theme, we're going to start the program in holiday mode. While it's been long considered the grey nomad's domain, more and more families are choosing to pack up their lives to travel around Australia. Some did as a response to the COVID-19 lockdowns. Others were fulfilling a lifelong dream. For those who were bold enough to take the leap, adventures, hard work, unexpected challenges and rewards were there to greet them. Some think that doing the lap of Australia, or even part of it, in a caravan is madness. Our reporter Lara Stimson spoke to Canberra families who embraced it, all in search of what could be the new Australian dream. Woo! Can you, can you see any of the 30,000 crocs in there, Addy? They're only freshies. Right, my turn. Ready? Aaron Clawson and his son Atticus are taking turns somersaulting off a boat in Lake Argyle in Western Australia. Mum Ali is cooking up breakfast on the barbecue. Why did, what you, is this, what did you set the timer Best for? Day of my life. Best day of your life? No. Nah. It's up there though. It's up there, isn't it? They've embarked on the biggest adventure of their life, the big lap of Australia. With the van in tow, they've hit one of the travelling world's crown jewels, an infinity pool overlooking the 1,000-square-kilometre lake. The stuff you're typically often seeing people flash around on Instagram or whatever is often the fancy gorges and the Kimberley and, you know, up in the top end. Especially you go to some of these gorges and if nobody else is there and you've just got your little tiny family and you're swimming and it just feels like you're in heaven. But for all the dreams and social media highlights, there is the reality of cooping a family into an 18 to 20 foot van and mistakes are plenty. I think it took us, I would say, about three months to make every single possible rookie mistake. The stresses and the reality and and the maintenance, like the number of repairs we've had to do to keep the show on the road, um, are definitely more than, than what I had anticipated. Juggling finances is a question many travellers have. Annette Jones owns travel website All Around Oz and the accompanying Facebook group has gained over 20,000 new members since April. There's no shortage of tips there on just how much is needed to fund the lap. It all depends, but the rule of thumb was a dollar a kilometre to actually do the travel. Budget beforehand could be anywhere, whether you have a um, four-wheel drive or not, from... 50, 60,000 up to, who knows, quarter of a million. It's not just what to spend, but how to prepare. They get to a point where they think, how are we going to fund it? And then the next couple of questions are, do we rent our house out if they own their own home or do we sell it? And if you're renting, then I guess it doesn't matter. Then it's just storage. And that's another question that gets asked. What do we do with all our furniture? Lucia Sharrod was in a motel room during a road trip from Canberra to Adelaide when she was first introduced to the big lap. We scrimped and saved every scrap of leave, purchased some leave, did out all our calculations and we managed to get, I think, 45 weeks off work. 
Um, and then we packed up the whole house, decluttered it as we did and um, put it all into storage and then set off on 40 weeks of amazingness. Choosing to rent out their home meant their mortgage was covered. Having leave kept the money coming in. But the pressure of resettling back into Canberra life loomed large over the last leg of their lap. It was really actually quite challenging, I think in particular the last four weeks, because we were trying to not wish away the time, but we were also in the midst of trying to plan to be back, getting the kids back to school, getting the house organised again, getting all our belongings, um, vacating the tenants and all that sort of thing. So um, the life admin started, I think, to impact us and our mindset about experiencing what we were actually doing. There's travel fatigue and the sometimes harsh reality of full-time travel that requires discipline, a trait that shines through travellers Aaron and his family have met on the road. The kind of people that have the knackers to put life on hold and have some discipline and to actually make a trip like this work. It's a lot of discipline and so they're really they're energetic, passionate, kind of smart people. Discipline Aaron's family are drawing on themselves as they look to extend their own finish line by another year. Remembering that sense of like what would Groundhog Day look like? You do get worn out or you, you get like, um, you know, travel fatigue. But picturing what that would actually look like when you get back home, why would you want to cut it short? A short-term adventure for a lifetime of memories and a travelling legacy for the next generation. We all know a good diet leads to better brain function and a healthier life, and it's a message that carries particular significance for people living with dementia. The condition is the second leading cause of death in Australia and the leading cause of death for women. Almost 500,000 Australians have dementia, with about 65% living at home, and that's where the danger lies. Dementia causes a person's loss of memory, function and sensation, so they can end up with poor dietary habits or even stop eating altogether. Hannah Donald looks at why nutrition has become such an important part of dementia treatment. Yeah, I do a lot of running. I think I just needed to eat the right type of food because of that fact. Yeah, I played football and when, and even before that, when I was young, um, I was always running um, in the carnivals. You've taught me that nutrition is really important, so I figure if it's always been important, then it needs to still be important, even though it's tempting just to do something really easy sometimes. For husband and wife, Ken and Judy, their journey with dementia has not shaken their commitment to healthy eating. Ken, who is a former high school PE teacher, lives with dementia and now casts a strong focus on the foods that he consumes to continue with his daily exercise. Although it is possible for somebody living with dementia to remain nutritionally independent for quite some time after a diagnosis, ensuring they consume the correct nutrients is essential. Dementia Australia CEO Marie McCabe describes why some people living with dementia may stop eating altogether. They might forget to eat or drink or how to chew or swallow as their dementia progresses. They can have a dry mouth or mouth discomfort and they might be unable to recognise food and drink. So it's really important that we're able to support people to live well and to ensure that their nutritional needs are being met. 
Nathan Dacuna is an assistant professor of human nutrition at the University of Canberra and researches dementia and the role that nutrition plays in delaying the cognitive decline. So for people with dementia, probably one of the most important things around nutrition is just to eat enough food because of the time people can become quickly malnourished if they're forgetting to eat, if they're not hydrated, if they're not enjoying food. So that's probably a really important focus point is to make sure that people are actually getting enough kilojoules into their body and that can also increase the likelihood they're getting enough of those nutrients that they need that are good for their brain. Many people with dementia live alone and are solely responsible for their own nutrition. Walking through 83-year-old Mickey's home, the family memories adorn the walls and every bench top is covered in sentimental personal effects. The kitchen is clearly the social hub within the nearly 50-year-old home and the smell of freshly baked cornflake cookies waft through the inviting living room. Growing up in rural farm life, food has always been the glue bringing her family together. I have known probably how to cook since I was about 15. My father cooked breakfast, but everything else was done by my mother. Before Mickey began receiving nutritional support, she was most concerned that they may stop her from cooking her family favourites and indulging in sweet treats. But as the main goal for people living with dementia is to just eat enough kilojoules, Mickey was pleased to discover that they encouraged her to continue what she is best at. Best at making a mess. <laughs> I like to make meat, meat pies. I like to make them own, my own pastry and cook them in, cook the meat. And I'm a, got a sweet tooth. I like eating mint ice cream, mint flavoured ice cream. While people living with dementia can still enjoy cooking their favourites, receiving in-house support is crucial as they may not end up eating it. This can lead to significant weight loss, fatigue and a higher chance of injury and illness. Sometimes it's just that they can't be bothered preparing a meal and we need to know that they are eating well and that they do have food in the house and it may be the shopping that's the issue rather than cooking. So they may be able to cook but they may not feel confident to go out and shop. So that's where support services are really important. Alongside Marie's suggestions of allowing support services to help with ensuring there is food in the house, Nathan suggests bringing in an occupational therapist to assess if there could be any improvements made around the home. This could be using appliances, utensils, or even labelling different areas of the kitchen. While there is limited research to suggest a specific diet could help the decline through dementia, Dementia Australia currently recommend the Mediterranean diet. We do know that having a really nutrient-dense diet is good for the brain, so getting enough B vitamins is particularly good. So having a lot of leafy greens, some nuts, in some cases a bit of red meat, or particularly seafood is quite good as well. So we know seafood has a lot of iodine, iron, omega-3 fatty acids, which are good for the brain. So making sure that a person is having a healthy diet can help to potentially reduce the rate of cognitive decline. While in Canberra there are many pre-packaged and pre-prepared meal options for people living with dementia, there is still the want to cook in their own family home. By seeking in-home support, occupational therapy and potentially trying a new diet, people living with dementia may be able to stay nutritionally independent in their own home. Just like Mickey, who through it all still finds time to make her pies, eat home in ice cream and never losing her sense of humour. I don't like the alternative, I suppose. I'm not, not happy to... Not, not ready to go into a home or anything. Living by yourself, you don't need a lot of food, so I don't always eat it, but I cook it. <laughs> <laughs>
While we're talking food, let's look at the rapid growth of the bush food industry in Australia. Native plants such as wattle seeds, lemon myrtle and bush tomatoes, to name just a few, are becoming more common in supermarkets and on restaurant menus. But the bush food movement is not just about the indigenous ingredients produced in Australia and a wider choice of food for us to eat. The cultural significance of these foods tell us a story about connection between First Nations people and the land they've been living off for tens of thousands of years. Leo Pim Provetjet reports on this cultural and culinary journey. A native plant is one that is indigenous and grows in a place from local natural selection. Here in Australia, they include things like lemon myrtle, mountain pepper and bottle seeds, ingredients that you don't often see in your local grocery store or in many of our diets. And yet these bush fruits have been eaten by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for generations. Plus, they might very well be growing in your backyard. If you want to learn more, well, look around you. I feel a connection every day when I go out. Um, to a natural setting where these plants are growing, you know, um, I feel a direct connection to my ancestors when I'm out on country picking uh, foods and um, or using foods, you know. Um, so that's, I think, how it can really tie back to culture. It's, it's really that direct, unbroken link um, back to our, ancest our ancestral ways. Adam Ship is passionate about teaching the community about the connection between native plants, the environment and culture. His company Eurobuy specialises in workshops and projects around traditional plant use, Aboriginal food flavours and medicines. Uh, I'm a Wiradjuri man, so my father's um, people, we are originally, fam uh, my father's family and people were originally from Dubbo um, region of New South Wales. Um, and I uh, am actually currently living now back on my traditional lands, um, but I was born and raised in Ngunnawal country in Canberra, uh, where I spent a good 37 years of my life. Here at the University of Canberra, we have the Nalajima Gardens. Developed in 2019 with well over 100 Ngunnawal plants, many of which are native edibles, the gardens are purposely situated on the central walkway next to the library so it's easy for students to come by. Well, first of all, the gardens raise awareness. That's the first thing that they do. The fact that we've actually got a uh, Ngunnawal garden on the campus it also emphasises to everyone that, uh, and just reinforces that, and reminds everyone actually, that we are on Ngunnawal land. So this is the land of the Ngunnawal people. So the gardens themselves though, give a very sort of physical, um, tangible presence uh, to, for the Ngunnawal people on our campus. That was UC Pro Vice-Chancellor Academic Jeff Crisp talking about the value and purpose of these gardens on campus. It's, it's also a teaching tool that we have or a teaching resource because uh, I know some of our teaching staff actually bring their students out and they sit in the gardens and they talk about the plants, they talk about the Ngunnawal people, they talk about the relationship of people to place, um, which is really important. One of these teachers is Barkaji Man Paul Collis, who is a professor of Indigenous Studies at the university. Food, they say, is life. For Aboriginal people, in the past at least, food is associated with stories, 
uh, with their hunting trip stories, sacred places, medicine foods, uh, much more than that which goes into your mouth. Uh, there's cultural attachments to certain foods and places because of those who were there, those who showed you where those things are, spoke to you about the stories of those uh, plants and animals. Adam Ship agrees. Food is the key ingredient connecting us all. It's a language to learn more about each other's culture, family, and history. Food, in general, um, obviously all humans, regardless of what background we are, um, we need food. You know, so it's a good way to kind of make those, I guess, bonds, but also better understandings of cultures and things. So that's how I feel. Um, what I do, um, sharing that kind of knowledge um, can help to get that broader, I guess, understanding and appreciation of my people's cultures. This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production this month by journalism students at the University of Canberra. Public libraries have been described as hidden treasures, an understated and sometimes undervalued part of every community in Australia. They're not just places full of books and resources either. Libraries offer people the chance to socialise and access technology they might not have at home. It explains why nearly half of all Canberrans have a library membership. For long periods during the pandemic, libraries were underutilised. But as our reporter Celeste Gibbs found out, they're trying to lure people back by becoming spaces for creation as well as collection. All right, so, welcome to the hub. <laughs> Thank you. Now, first up, signing procedure. So, I'm here in the podcasting room in the Woden Public Library. It's a small space and quieter than the rest of the building. The controls take a moment to manage. All right, let's go to the next setup. All right, here we've got two different desks. Carlos Gongora has been with the ACT Public Libraries for two years, and today he's teaching me how to use the space. I'll just give you cables, microphones, and good luck with that. ACT's public libraries have been undergoing a transformation. There's still the emphasis of books here, but new facilities, such as the podcasting studio, recording and rehearsal studio, and the push towards digital and e-resources, has allowed the libraries the ability to meet the public's digital needs. Well, this whole facility is born from the community because they ask us to do this. There are a lot of things in the new digital era that we live where people want to tackle into become YouTubers or get into podcasters or just have access to the digital knowledge that we can provide with this equipment. And these spaces have already become immensely popular. Ooh, uh, that's been very variety of people. That is, there's been a lot of different people. I mean, majority of those ones are basically just regular members of the community, which is something that we really like. To accommodate for Canberra's growing multicultural community, one of the more structured services the library offers are the English conversation classes. There's 12 people here for the Monday morning class in Gungalan. People for three, three, and three. 
This is Belinda Sutton. She's a volunteer teacher and finds teaching these classes incredibly rewarding. I learn about new cultures. It's just fantastic to meet new faces. We have all levels. We have beginner through to advanced. And it's, it's uh, from across the world. Every nationality you can think of we've had. So, yeah, it's just it's delightful. Sally who came to Australia from Iran four months ago, says the class is invaluable. I want to speak uh, uh, to another person and um, I learn uh, speak English, I learn accident, Australian and another country, uh, and learn um, new words and etc. <laughs> <laughs> This is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. When it comes to borrowing, ACT's public libraries are doing some pretty untraditional no things. In the past year alone, more than 700,000 digital and e-resources were made available to the public. The misconception is that libraries are only about books. That's definitely not the case either. We are about books still, but we're also about other formats of information, so e-books and audio books. So we try and keep up with the new technologies as they emerge, um, while also retaining some of the older true formats that people still love. Don't mean to say that I know. This is Jasbir. She's the Belconnen Locations Branch Coordinator and says the work the libraries are doing to meet the digital age is really transforming the space. One of the really positive changes that I'd love to see is that we're taking on board the need to cater to different audiences and also, also find, talking to customers and finding out what it is that they want. So when was the last time you thought about ACT's public libraries? You might like to make like a book and check it out. After all, the story you've been listening to was made there. When Nip Weijerek Rima started a florist business from her home eight years ago, it was a way of creating a meaningful job for her sister, who has Down syndrome. Establishing Gigi's Flowers earned Nip recognition as the Young ACT Australian of the Year, as well as many other community service awards. She told Chloe Swan the social enterprise has become so much more than a florist business. So what is the story of Gigi's? How did you and your family create such a meaningful and successful business? Yeah, so eight years ago, my family and I created a florist in our bathroom for my little sister, Guyana, who just happened to have Down syndrome. We basically wanted her to have meaningful employment and we wanted her to truly feel uh, passion and purpose in her work. So, yeah, run me through a day in the life of a Gigi's employee. What are all of the things you guys do and get up to at work? Yeah, so we have an army of about 35, 40 people with disabilities that work in our business. They uh, travel all around Canberra delivering beautiful bouquets of flowers and making gift tampers and delivering them too. So a day in the life would be that their support worker turns up at their house, helps them get ready for the day, packs their lunch, packs their snacks, um, and they come to Gigi's. Um, then they get straight stuck into a jobs board, which is all of the jobs that they have to do for the day. Um, and then they might do, you know, depending on their ability and their tolerance level to work, uh, they might do an hour of work or they might 
start at 15 minutes of work and then they have time to do something that they like to do like a preferred activity so that could be games or carrying in or sport um, and then they just keep doing that all day and most of them we have an exercise program every day um, where we're trying to teach holistic health um, so you know on a Monday they do boot camp um, on a Tuesday they have a day off on a Wednesday we run a lunch club on Thursdays we do Zumba and basketball and Fridays we concentrate on work so there's lots of wraparound activities that they can do and then they in the afternoon it's time for delivery so they get in our pink vans and deliver all around Canberra and uh, Queanbeyan area. Wow, it sounds like you do a lot more than just deliver flowers, which is great. How many employees did you start with compared to how many you have now? Just um, the growth you obviously would have had. Yes, we started with one, which was Guyana. And now, you know, anywhere between 35 and 40 people that benefit from our programs, uh, that work in our business, that really have a place in our family. Um, and that's been the most the pivotal change for us is being able to employ more and more people with disabilities, gain more and more employment. Uh, that's where kind of my job satisfaction comes from. Awesome. Um, so I know GG's is actually a social enterprise. Did you just want to tell me a bit about what that means? Yeah, so um, GG's stands for Geetha and Guyana, which um, is Guyana, which is my sister, and Guyana's mum, Geetha. Um, social enterprise means that we do good. We do, you know, the money, all the money that we raise throughout our sales goes back into employing people with disabilities. It goes into enabling fair work wages, you know, um, award wages amazing conditions amazing supported training opportunities we do all of that and that's where all of that money goes to so what are some of your biggest achievements with ggs i think for us it's just being able to stay alive like for a social enterprise to be around for eight years is actually remarkable like eight years is a very long time the average lifespan of a social enterprise is about three years and none generally make it past five um but we run our race every day we try and do you know lead by example do beautiful leadership and in that way it kind of comes back to us and um we can retain our clients we can retain our customers we can you know we can do all of that stuff and really have good business practices how do you yourself feel um, getting to go to work every day and just do all of these amazing things you do, knowing you're making a real difference in the lives of so many people and in the community as well? How does that feel for you? Amazing. I just have such great job satisfaction. I can kind of go home and don't get me wrong, I get stressed and I get tired and I'm always like, ah, but I just love being able to go to work every day and have a new challenge to work on and concentrate on. And yeah, it's really great. I really do love it. That was Nip Ouija Wigrima, the founder of Gigi's Flowers. And on that uplifting note, it brings our program to an end. Making a Difference is produced by a different university every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. For more stories from the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. I'm Leela Khrailing. I'm Maddie Green. Thanks for listening. Listening.